of noon, I'm delighted to introduce you to Kelly, a highly experienced respiratory therapist whose career has taken fascinating turns. Kelly's journey began as a respiratory therapist, providing critical care to patients during their most vulnerable moments. Over the years, she's transitioned into an education role where she has designed and taught many of her own classes, imparting her extensive knowledge to new and experienced healthcare professionals. Join us for an enlightening conversation as Kelly shares her stories from the high stakes world of critical care to her passion for educating the next generation of healthcare providers. This episode promises valuable insights into the world of respiratory therapy. Let's get started. Well, Kelly, thank you so much for joining us on the Noon Podcast. I appreciate you coming on the show today. Well, thank you for having me. I'm so happy to be here as a respiratory therapist. Yay. Yeah, see, I, you're actually our first respiratory therapist that we've had on the show, which is really cool. I think it's such a unique position. You actually reached out to me. How did you find out about the show? Quite by accident, somewhere on Facebook. Um, I'm part of, well, I'm in that group, the uh, transport group, mm-hmm. and um, because I've loved transport my whole entire career. And I think you posted on there about your podcast, and I took a listen, and I thought, wow, this is awesome. Love it. That's so, really cool. And then you were looking for people, and I'm like, oh, I'll do it. I'll do it. <laughs> <laughs> and so did you work in the transport capacity as an RT? Absolutely. So I've been an RT now. This will be 40 years for me. Oh, wow. I spent 30 of those doing transport. And just a little backstory, my very first job out of respiratory school was at UCLA Medical Center. I thought I'd start small. And um, (laughs) from there, I was very quickly inducted into the transport part of that department. So we did ground. We had a helicopter a couple of air transports. From there, I got asked to do some private outside ventilator transports. From there, there was an ambulance company that tagged me to do some ventilator transports. And so it just kind of went on and on from there. But I left UCLA for a little bit uh, for another hospital. I went back 1990-ish, somewhere in there, to be a technical supervisor in the cardiac surgery ICU. Wow. And we had a lot of kids that, you know, they would call me up and say, can you go on a transport? we got a kid that needs to be picked up, you know, ASAP because he's got to have surgery this afternoon. And I go, okay, I'll go, you know, sure, I'm game. So I ended up doing even more transports when I went back to UCLA my second time. And the funny part of that was um, we had a rotating schedule and, you know, who was supposed to be uh, on transport team. And I was always getting the call and I'd go, guys, wait, yeah, I'll go and I can, I can go on transport. I don't have any plans later on. This is going to be a midnight transport. I can tell, but isn't so-and-so on call? And they would say, so-and-so, they, um, well, there's a weight limit front and back and right on the helicopter. (laughs) You're the skinniest one we know. So you're it. Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) Oh, I got a lot of transports in just because of that. Well, that's not necessarily a bad thing, right? More experience for you in the long run and a lot of really good views, I'm sure. Oh, definitely. From the back, not so good, but yeah. Yeah, it was all good. Did you, did you get to choose where you were or? Um, no. No. And when you did fly, were you flying with a nurse and a paramedic or another nurse or how did that work? 
mostly another nurse. Occasionally a doctor would come along. Um, oh. Many times we had a, um, either a paramedic or an EMT in the front seat with the pilot. If that pilot wasn't already a paramedic or an EMT, depended on what we were picking up, but very rarely a doctor, more often a nurse and either paramedic or EMT. Yeah, that's really cool. That's really, really cool. What a unique experience. So what pulled you to respiratory therapy? That's a darn good question. Um, <laughs> I, out of college, my degree is actually in foreign languages and I just decided, oh. <laughs> yeah, I thought, I don't, I don't really want to go work for the state department in the year that I graduated. And I was always drawn to the medical field anyway. And so there was a respiratory therapy school where I lived in Phoenix and they were offering a two year respiratory program. It was an, an accelerated condensed program. So you could do two years worth of school in 10 months. And I thought, wow, that's less than a year. I could do that. So for 10 months, I saw no one, talked to no one, did nothing except either have my head in the books or be in clinic mm -hmm. and got it done. And then, like I said, my first job was UCLA. They hired me back to LA where I'm from. And the rest is history. It was just one wonderful ride. I learned something new every day on the job, which I think is important for everybody, whether you're an RT, mm -hmm. paramedic, or anybody, if you can't find one thing new every day to add to your knowledge bank, then you've got, you're doing something wrong. <laughs> right. That's going to be a hard job, right? Because then you're going in and you're just, you're probably hating life. You're hating your job. You're not having any fun, but that, what a great outlook that you have by being able to go in and to actually learn something new every day. And then you were telling me a little bit before we started recording that, now that you're out of that field, you're doing some teaching. And what all are you teaching? Quite a bit, actually. Um, so my first course that I did was pediatric emergencies because I was finding I was orienting people, whether they were new hires, registry students, you know, whoever. I was also an educator in a couple places. And so my job was skills days, policies and procedures and, and annual competencies. And I was just saying the same things over and over. And so I thought, well, I'm just going to put it together. So what I ended up with was a course essentially um, for on pediatric emergencies, not so much from the go pick them up standpoint, but from the standpoint of a lot of respiratory therapists work at hospitals that get kids in the emergency room that that hospital doesn't have a PICU or even a PEDS-4, but they go to the closest place and people, even though they may have taken PALS, weren't really prepared for the no. airway stuff, you know, the ventilator stuff and that kind of thing. And it's funny because I said just because whoever was on that transport was generally a paramedic. I said, just ask the paramedic what they did. If I'm not around, just ask the paramedic, what vent settings were you on? If you don't know and you're not sure, ask the paramedic, like, where's your tube taped? You know, yeah. but I just felt like it, I needed to say, okay, when you get a kid and you're not used to it, here's what you do. That was number one. And then number two kind of evolved the same thing for the neonatal ICU and uh, a few others after that. So it sounds like you do a lot of stuff with peds and with babies, where that's been like the majority of your, your studies. That's really cool. And that tends to scare a lot of us. Like you said, PALS doesn't really get you ready for ventilator. You know, it's it you do learn some tubing techniques and sizes and stuff like that, but ugh, ventilators are just not great. <laughs> they're scary. They do great things, but they're scary if you have no history with them. Exactly. And some of the transport ventilators aren't really made for kids. 
you know, no, you, they're not. you can tweak them and make them work for a kid, but they're not really built for kids. And so having that skill of being able to say, okay, am I ventilating enough, fast enough, deep enough? Is my tube in the right place? How do I know? You know, I can't draw blood gas in the rig. So now what do I do? How do I know? Um, yes. That kind of stuff. Yeah. So do you do your classes locally or do you have them online or how do you, what format are you using? I was doing pediatric class live until COVID hit. Of course, <laughs> I had to upload everything. And then when I uploaded it, I thought, okay, that's it. I'll just let that one ride on, on, on the website and I'll go back and polish up my neonatal class. As soon as COVID was over, my phone starts ringing. Can you come to this class? Can you come to this class? So, <laughs> and then I thought, all right, this is it. I'm really going to focus on expanding now my neonatal class. I've got three sessions and I'm building another one. And um, Respiratory Care Board of California just came out today and said 15 out of our 30 annual CEUs need to be live. So mm-hmm. I'm sure I'm going to have to go back out and do <laughs> live Rockstar again, which I don't mind. It's good. Since you brought it up, what are the requirements? Because I'm guessing it's a biannual renewal or how do you guys do that? So every two years, we have to have 30 continuing education units. And so they just came out with the new guidelines. 15 of those have to be live. They can't all be online anymore. COVID's over. Five of those could be from attending like a state meeting, like a um, California Respiratory Care Society meeting, any kind of a state meeting, respiratory care board meeting, AARC leadership meeting, that kind of thing. And then the other... 10 have to be directly related to clinical practice for respiratory care practitioners. And then in addition to that, I'm also a neonatal pediatric specialist. So I have to make sure I have 30 of those CEUs as neopeds units. So usually at the end of every two years, I've got about 40 or 50 racked up. So anybody who's a respiratory therapist and also has a specialty designation after their name has to have even more. That's crazy. So for paramedics to renew, we have to have 60 CE hours every other year. <laughs> and it, as a critical care, we it's a lot more than that, which is, is a lot, but it's, it's cool and it's nice to keep us refreshed, you know. So in your practices, did you deal mostly with infants in pediatrics? Mostly, yes. Um, A couple of my side gigs were adults, mostly trached and ventilated patients that had to go back and forth to appointments or to, you know, wherever. I never, I didn't really take trauma patients anywhere. Mm -hmm. That was kind of my biggest fear with transport is, you know, we would, we would go take a kid back to his home hospital, for example, a ventilated kid back to his NICU or PICU. But on the way back is an open rig. If we came across an accident, remember this is Los Angeles. Okay. So yes. um, any accidents that we saw or anything, if we were first on scene, we would have to take it and I'd be like, oh, please, no, please, no, please, no, please. No. <laughs> <laughs> I'm laughing because your fear is trauma patients. And most of the people, and not all of them, but most of the people on my show, it's like pediatrics are our fear. You know, we don't want to run those peds and we don't want to have to be there for live births. And <laughs> while we do it, it's not our favorite thing to do. So what have some of your favorite cases been? Like as a respiratory therapist, what do you look forward to? Probably hmm, my favorite ones. I don't know. They're they're all interesting, each and every one. Each one has their challenges. Mm-hmm. Um, each one has, you know, upshots and downsides and things like that. Um, probably my craziest transport ever that actually came out good. Um, we went to go pick up twins and, um, mm-hmm. UCLA had two 
ambulances. They had the regular standard one, and then they had the big one, mm-hmm. um, the big, the big fat one. I can't remember what we called it now, but anyway. So they decided they were going to send two doctors, two nurses, two respiratory therapists, and two isolates. And so we got to the referring hospital, and we realized we're not all going to fit. So we left one doctor behind, and then mom wanted to ride back to us, and we're like, we don't have any room. She yeah. could sit up front because we had an EMT and a paramedic driving. And um, and now, well, could we put two two kids in one isolate, and then we'll come back and pick up the isolate later? And I I don't think we were able to do that because each of these babies, I think there were 26 weakers, both of them. And even oh, wow. the teeny 26 weakers had so many lines and so many IVs. The nurses said, we can't, no, we need to make sure we keep them separate. So somehow we crammed all of us in the back of this ambulance and the kids and the do- one doctor and the two nurses and us two RTs and made it back. I can't remember. I think we were sitting on each other's laps just trying yeah. to, but we got them back in one piece and we were like, huh. Okay. <laughs> that worked. But that was a crazy one. Yeah. I mean, it sounds like it. And they, those kids can be very critical with the amount of tubes that they have and the IVs that they have either in their heads, you know, on their scalps or in their arms or their legs. And I know how, I mean, I don't have a lot of experience with isolates, but those things are pretty big. Like, I'm surprised that you were able to fit two of them in the same ambulance on top of eight other providers, <laughs> you know? I was surprised the ambulance made it up the hill where we were going. <laughs> <laughs> this is too heavy. Yeah, those isolates are big. They're, They're hunky big. and uncomfortable, and but they do what they need to do, and that's you know that's all we can ask for. They're heavy. Speaking of things that are big, another transport that I went on. This was actually an adult. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, we had to go pick up because I was working in the cardiac surgery unit now, but we had to go pick up an adult at another hospital that had he was on an LVAD unit and yep. this was back in 1990 something so those LVAD units were as big as you and me right yes <laughs> the cord the the cable from the LVAD to the patient was about a foot and a half long oh my gosh and that was it so we get there and I'm thinking how are we going to load this guy his ventilator because this was before we had the little pair pack he had the one yep. of the, I think he had the um the PLV so we're going to load him, this, this dinosaur PLV, and then this foot and a half cable attached to the LVAD without losing any of it. Yeah. And it was just me and the nurse. That was it. That's all they sent. So we had, of course, our paramedic and our EMT drivers, and we're at, we're saying, guys, you got to help us. And they're like, we can't. We're not allowed to lift anything. And I'm like, oh, yeah, yeah, you are. <laughs> yes, this is half your job. <laughs> and so somehow we got this guy and his PLV and this gigantic LVAD all in a line loaded in the back. And then we're like, great, all we have to do is get there and then unload him. We'll just reverse engineer what we did. Yeah. So we, we called in. We're like, we need everybody, all hands on deck to get this guy out of the thing. And um, so he came in, <clears throat> had his surgery, was off the LVAD, and he went home a happy camper. And I was wow. like, wow. <laughs> Yeah, I think that's a huge part of what we do is figuring out the puzzle pieces to get that person from point A to point B. And it's really, it's really cool when it ends up being successful, you know? Yeah. So did you have any type of cheat sheets that you used? Because I'm guessing that you guys dealt a lot with ideal body weights, right? When you're working with the ventilators and stuff, did you have any resources that you used on a regular basis to help you get through your days? Back then, not really. 
I, so I was transporting mostly babies and kids. So I wasn't transporting like adult ARDS patients or anything like that. I think we can't hand calculated ideal body weights and tidal volumes and mostly just went by pulse oximeter. We didn't have an end tidal in our rig back at that, uh, at that point. We had a TCOM that we used on the little kids. Mm-hmm. That was about it, but just kind of relying on what the referring hospital gave us, you know, what was your last blood gas? Okay, I'm going to try to mimic those settings on my equipment um, and we'll take it from there. Just relying on, does he have good chest rise? Is he fogging the tube? You know, is his sats up? Is he working? You know, did I offload his worker breathing correctly? You're treating the patient, right? Not the monitor, which is good. Yeah, I think that's what everybody loves about transport is, you know, you don't have the entire hospital as a backup. Mm -hmm. It's you who's ever with you, the equipment that you have in your little magic carpet bag or whatever. And that's it. Yes. Uh, It's a really cool experience. Has there been anything that you've seen that's changed that just blows your mind in the medical field, in your field specifically? I mean, there's been a lot of changes, especially with COVID and moving away from ventilation and into high flow. Mm -hmm. Um, There wasn't any transportable high flow system when I was doing transports. And there's a couple out there now that people are using, which are great. Mm -hmm. The thing that people said about COVID, why people were having such a hard time when they were on a ventilator is because of the hemodynamic instability. They were already hemodynamically unstable. And then we added a bunch of positive pressure. And of course, their sats were in the toilet. So what did we do? Turned their peep way up, made them even more hemodynamically unstable and then they totally crash yeah going to high flow i think has been a very good thing but i think too the the thing that people don't understand about high flow is your patient has to be breathing number one yes to be in high (laughs) flow you know and when a patient who's saying to you i cannot breathe you know as an rt it's like never mind the high flow because i know what's going to happen very shortly next so i'm just going to go ahead and ventilate but just keeping in mind that hemodynamic instability if they're already unstable do you want to make them more unstable with a ton of peep even though they look like they need it yes thing i would caution against so yeah no for sure so we've talked a little bit about some of your favorite stuff but what would you say has been one of your worst cases that you feel comfortable talking about probably my worst case was a baby that we went to go pick up. This was um, a cardiac kid that was at a smaller hospital. And um, we went to go pick up this kid and we didn't know because we didn't, the doctor who spoke with the referring referring hospital doctor didn't think to ask. But when we got there, this cardiac kid was on 100% oxygen. So with cardiac babies, you don't know what kind of cardiac lesion they have. You don't know what kind of problem that they have. And if they need that patent ductus arteriosus to stay open, Mm -hmm. you don't want to give them 100% oxygen because that'll close it in a second. And then whatever backup plumbing, if you will, they had, that's gone. Yeah. And and, um, so... The, the funny thing about that, uh, I think we went to Denver. I don't remember what hospital it was, but it was a smaller hospital in Denver that obviously didn't do cardiac kids. I don't know why this kid didn't go to a major regional hospital, but 
UCLA, they called us, we went, we picked up this kid. But um, so they asked me again, last minute, can you go on a transport? Sure, where are we going? We're going to Denver. And I'm like, okay, it's 5 p.m. now. This will be a late night. All right. <laughs> yes. So I gather my bag and all my stuff and I'm ready to go. And they said, it's snowing in Denver. You're going to need a little more than your little scrubby jacket. And I was like, oh. So I went and I didn't have anything with me. So I came back with a yellow gown on back when yellow gowns were cotton. And they're all laughing at me going, you're going to need more than that. So somebody happened to have like a big parka. I don't know why in Los Angeles they did, but they had a big fat parka. So we got there and sure enough, it was snowing and we're going through. But so we pick up this kid, we put the big kid back on 21%. And then the doctor stayed to try to explain to this other doctor why we don't put cardiac or, you know, possibly cardiac kids on 100%. So we're in the ambulance waiting and I'm burning up, you know, my tanks, I'm burning yeah. up. We're like, where is this doctor? You know, and he came back, well, I had to explain to him. <laughs> ah, <he> didn't. <laughs> it wasn't necessary right now. Yeah. <laughs> no, but that was probably my toughest transport was, you know, it's just like, I hope we didn't close this kid's duck. I really hope we didn't close this kid's duck. And he ended up being okay. So that was another oh, that's good. good. Yeah. But it's funny along those lines, another thing that often happens was the the guys on the regular rig got so used to just transporting adults. So whenever it was a kid, they'd say, okay, you got two full tanks of, of O2 and you got half a tank of air. And I would say, I need it the other way around. I'm going to go pick up a preemie, a preterm baby who I'm probably going to be ventilating 21, 22, 23%. I don't need two full H tanks of oxygen. I need two full H tanks of air. And they'd all look at me funny. And I'm like, I need both to run my ventilator. But, um, you know, and they, they would almost all say the same thing to me. Well, if you run out, just put them on 100% no can do for these things no. and <laughs> so did you ever have any like scary moments while you were in the, any of the rigs or flying or even in a hospital where you were like this is this is almost enough to make me quit you know anything that made you question why you were doing what you're doing well, probably the scariest, it had nothing to do with the patient. It was our driver. Um, Ventura Regional Hospital is about maybe an hour north of UCLA. We got called to go pick up a kid in Ventura, and this driver got us to Ventura in 30 minutes. Oh, yeah, that's pretty fast. And I, and and he was doing one of these, like, he'd slow down to, I don't know, 60 at an intersection and, you know, put his lights and siren on. And, and I'm going, nobody has time to see us coming. Yeah, just, just stop. Yeah. So when we got to Ventura, I just read this guy the riot act. And I said, you're going <laughs> to do the speed limit on the way back. Well, he didn't. He did the same thing. Got us back to UCLA in 30 minutes. And I'm going, we got a baby in the back. What yeah, thinking? what are you doing? Oh, that was scary. So that wasn't a patient scare. That was yeah. a, a, a driver scare. I don't know. I mean, it's still happened. a non, still on the job scare, right? It's, I think people forget how easy it is to, you know, maybe it's not the patients that are threatening us, but something on the job that's threatening us. And you felt threatened in that moment. Definitely. I, I've never had a patient threaten me. I don't think I've ever had parents threaten me. Um, I've had parents be a little strange, uh, but I haven't had anybody threaten me. No, that's uh, good. Not enough to make me quit. Um, the only thing that really wasn't enough to make me quit either, but just it made me question how and why we need so much health care in, in this country. But um, I remember going to one of the county hospitals to go pick up a kid. 
And um, this was in a, a Nikki baby. And this was a 30 bed NICU with 52 babies in it. How does so, that work? <laughs> well, yeah. And so all of the isolates were crammed together. You literally had six inches. And I'm going, how do you get back to reach what you need to do? How do you do anything? And they all kind of rolled their eyes at me like, this is it. And um, so what I had to do was take the baby off of their ventilator. And I had to use their Aerono 2 outlets to plug in my transport ventilator until I could go on tanks to get them mm -hmm. out. And I'm realizing there's there's 52 kids sharing 32 sets of outlets and I really don't want to unplug the wrong one here and um so yeah. there for 10 minutes like trying to trace the flow of gas to make sure that I was gonna like do a quick switcheroo with the right one and not like unplug the kid on either side of me and that was just nerve-wracking I just yes. thought you know and and the nurse was going through the same thing I don't want to unplug that kid's IV I want to you know yeah it just was it was a very challenging thing, but what do you do? You know? Yeah. Hopefully you figure it out and you do it right. <laughs> and yeah. everybody stays safe. Right. Though it doesn't sound like that was a super safe situation in the first place. No. And it's, it's something that's still going on today. Um, I still have friends that uh, do transport that are telling me, yep, I went back to XYZ hospital, you know, same thing, crossing of lines, you know, before it was full, they just used whatever. And now, you know, plugs, airlines, oxygen lines, if they're on an oscillator, they've got a third cooling line, you know, of air and things are wide together. And it's like, oh my gosh, you know, suction, everything is just a mess. Yeah. They're building all these NICUs everywhere. And people are saying, do we really need more NICUs? And the answer is, um, hmm. Yes. Yes, we do. <laughs> we need a lot of everything. I know I think here in Albuquerque, they're building a new, um, they had a NICU already and they're building a new building just for uh, babies and mothers, which is really neat. That should be done here pretty soon, but yeah, it's needed. It's a necessary service. You know, we transport a lot of ours out to Denver and a lot out to Texas for our specialties because we don't have a lot of pediatric and, and NICU services here in New Mexico. Mm, wow. Good to know. I'll have to tap Albuquerque, take the NICU class. Uh, Yuma, Arizona did the same thing. They had a, a NICU that was full, so they did a mother-baby unit. And so they're they're trying to figure out how to staff that. Kind of a challenge, but... Yeah, that's you know, the other half, right, is the, is the staffing. So not only are we short on rooms, we're also short on, on nurses and healthcare providers. And yeah, that's exactly. a huge... We do a lot of telehealth services out here because we don't have any doctors in the state to uh, treat the specialties that we require. We have a telehealth doctor based out of California that we check in with once every couple months just because mm -hmm. there's no rheumatologist specialists that are open here in New Mexico. Wow. Yeah. That's and I don't insane. know if it's a, yeah, it is insane. I don't know if it's a pay thing or if it's just uh, you know, uh, the living situation out here, but it is unfortunately, you know, one of those things that we just have to work and figure out around. There is a shortage of neonatologists and there's a shortage of healthcare workers. We keep building all these add-on units and, and, you know, the expectation from the general public is, you know, you call 911, they're going to be there in four minutes. And, and that's not necessarily true anymore. No. You know, or that the transport team's just going to be available at the snap of your fingers and that's not it there's there's such a need 
for units and for all walks of life of healthcare personnel. And, um, you know, I don't care what you do. It's like, just go into healthcare because we've got a lot of people coming in the country from every entry point that we have that all need a lot of healthcare. Yeah. Right. That are coming here sometimes just for the healthcare mm-hmm. because the, the assumption is that we have great healthcare here and that's not always the case, unfortunately. Unfortunately, but we've got to get people interested in getting trained, you know? Yes. And well, and we have to, we've got to figure out the pay, right? There's EMTs and paramedics. And then from paramedics to nurses, there's a huge pay disparity from nurses to nurse practitioners and from nurse practitioners to doctors, there's a huge pay disparity. And that's not something that's being addressed. And it should be because thanks to the pandemic, you know, now respiratory therapists are considered first responders, but our pay mm-hmm. didn't go up accordingly. And our true first responders, you guys, you know, did your pay go up accordingly? Probably not. No. Um, you know, everybody in healthcare deserves a good high paying job and benefits, I believe, but there has to come a point where people say, you know what, I'm okay, we're willing to pay for it. Right. You want the best care in the, in the world, then you got to pay for it. So. Yep. Yeah. Yep. No, my wife and I were talking about that today that, you know, during COVID, nurses, EMTs, paramedics, all healthcare were like either held up really highly on this pedestal, like you guys are heroes, you're amazing, healthcare workers rock, or you were down on the bottom and it was, don't get near me, don't touch me, you're infected, you're gross, you know, and just a huge, huge difference between up here and down here and um, you know, nurses did have the option for travel nursing, which was nice because they were getting paid a lot of money, a lot, a lot, a lot of money. Um, but now we're starting to see that go away again, because I don't even know, I think they just don't want to pay the, the travel nursing positions. You know, I think we're losing a lot of those grants and the funding for travel nursing pay to go into these little hospitals. So oh. you're starting to see the nurses start to kind of settle into local wherever they want to, or kind of a facility that they found that they really liked. Definitely. And that it was the same for respiratory therapists. They got all these contracts out there and therapists were bailing from, you know, jobs they'd been at for 20 years with pensions and benefits to go make what they felt like they deserved. Mm-hmm. Um, and there's, there's still a lot of contracts out there, but essentially it's like, it, it's like a square dance. Like everybody just took one step right. You know, I'm going to go try this hospital. And then they needed somebody to fill that one. And then they got to had somebody else fill the other one. But I think it was good overall for the profession. If anything good came out of it, I think people who took that step right learned a different perspective on how things could be done. Uh, maybe learned a new skill, maybe gained, you know, a bigger network of people. Um, maybe it was reciprocal. Hey, at this hospital, we did it this way. Would that work for this hospital? Well, here at this hospital, we do it this way. Oh, that's a good idea. I think healthcare took a step up if people were paying attention from that. And you're right, the RT contracts are kind of slowing down, but they're saying that this fall, RSV and COVID are making a comeback. So you never know. I think I think this is going to be something that's said every year for the next several years. You know, RSV and COVID. COVID's just going to be one of those ones that it's built in, just like flu and pneumonia and the rest of them, all right around this time of year. Exactly. I think you're right. Yeah, I don't think it'll be going away anytime soon. <laughs> <laughs> Protect yourself. That's right. That's right. So for your 
educator position, right? You have the specialty with the pediatrics. What type of schooling did you have to have in order to be in this profession into the specialties? So my basic schooling was I had to have a, I back then, this was 1983, you had to have a bachelor's degree or the equivalent, whatever that was. I had a bachelor's degree um, to get into this two-year program. So fast forward to now that uh, it's a bachelor's of science in respiratory care is required for anybody entering now. So I never went back and got my BSRT. And the reason I didn't is because I was having too much fun learning everything I was learning on the job. I didn't have time. And there, yeah. was, no, there was no BSRT programs where I came from. And, you know, I got into the profession. I learned a lot on the job. I took a lot of extra classes. I showed interest in wanting to do transports and NICU and, you know, everything else. I blinked and I got married and had a kid. And next thing I know, it's the year 2020. And I, <laughs> that's how kind of how it went. But I really, you know, and don't forget to add in there all the overtime and extra shifts and everything. I didn't have time to go to school, get my bachelor's in, in respiratory care. But for the specialty um, designation is mostly just studying. There's a lot of study guides and studying. It's assumed you should know a certain amount as a respiratory care practitioner about babies and kids. But there was a huge study guide, a couple of days of uh, Kettering review and things like that. And I, when I took my um, neonatal ped specialty exam, there's, I don't know, seven or eight different versions out there. I got the version that was all about pediatric pulmonary function testing. Mm -hmm. I don't do pulmonary function testing. I don't do it for a reason. I don't do pediatric PFTs, but somehow I passed this test. <laughs> and, I was kind of disappointed and I thought it would be more about actual neonatal ICU stuff and more transport stuff. And I thought it would be more about the typical childhood diseases that kids get. And like you said, RSV and flu and, you know, all the things that kids do, trauma, things like that. And it was all about a variety of different things, but there were so many questions about pediatric PFTs. I thought, I'm it, I'm done. It's over. <laughs> But I, I passed. <laughs> that's that's great to hear. Yeah, no, that's that's fantastic. So, is there any advice that you would give to somebody that would that's possibly interested in becoming an RT? I would say definitely take the track that gets you your bachelor's of science because that's going to open doors for you. Get registered. So not, not enough. You have to take a four-year degree. You have to sit for your registry exam. Definitely get registered. Definitely pick a specialty. But take your specialty after you've been in the field a few years, because we have all these new grads who go on and they take all their specialty designations. And I'm like, but you're not specializing in anything and you haven't worked in anything for more than six months. Yeah. You know, the credibility is kind of not there. Yeah, you passed the test, but, you know, tell me quick, you got a four-year-old, what size ET tube do you put in? Yeah. You know, yeah. and so um, I would say, you know, for, for the respiratory therapist track, yeah, just get your bachelor's, get registered, take your time picking a specialty. Now they're having a thing called advanced practice RT, which is great. That's opened up doors for us to be able to place arterial lines, you know, do bronchoscopies and, and all kinds of stuff, which is a, a nice avenue for us. So just take advantage of it and figure out what you like. And there's nothing wrong with being an all-around RT who can plug in to any area of the hospital. They're just as valuable as somebody who only works NICU. So. Yeah, like like a generalist kind of is how you would describe that. That's really cool. So there's, I you know, I learned about that this last year. So there's 
RT and then there's RRT, right? So what does the registration designation do that's differently? So an RT has simply graduated from their program. So if they got mm -hmm. a bachelor's in RT, then they have a BSRT. If they're just an RT, they never got their bachelor's. They just went to a respiratory therapy school 100 years ago, like I did. Um, <laughs> and then to sit for the registry exam is two parts. There's, um, there's a clinical simulation part that's four hours long. And then there's something called the multiple choice, which is, I believe, also four hours long. Um, unless they've changed it. But it's interesting because when I took the registry exams, like a registered nurse, an RN is a registered nurse, right? So an mm -hmm. RRT would be a registered respiratory therapist. When I took the RRT exam, I was the first one to take it on paper. In other words, the RRT exams used to be an oral exam. You had to sit in front of a board of doctors and you were barraged with questions mm -hmm. that you, you had to you had to know. So I took the first one on paper. So the clinical simulations, you know, a patient has this and does this. I'm sure you're familiar with this, you know, so mm -hmm. what would you recommend? And then the second part was just multiple choice of, you know, so a patient presents with this. What do you want to do? You know, or, or you have these ventilator settings and you have this blood gas. What's your next move kind of thing? It's pretty in-depth and it's supposed to be entry level, but it's pretty in-depth. So somebody who's registered has shown that they can, they can plug in everywhere. They do know their stuff. Not to say that people who aren't registered don't. One of the smartest gals I worked with was a supervisor at a hospital that I worked at. She never got registered. People were always asking, why didn't you get registered? Why didn't you? And she was like me, you know, it's like, I got married. I had two kids, you know, I did this, I did that. Next thing I know they're going off to college and now I don't feel like doing it anymore. So yeah, I would tell young people do that first. Get it all figured out. Right. No, that's really cool. And the registry process I think is really cool. And it sounds pretty similar to you know, like you, like you were describing a registered nurse or like for paramedics, we have the state registry and then we have the national registry, right? So in all that, would you say that RTs are compensated well? No, not, not as much as they should be. RTs have always kind of jokingly said, you know, we're the redheaded stepchild of the hospital, <laughs> um, uh -huh. you know, and so, but I think with the advanced practice, um, RT coming up, I think the more we try to branch out and specialize in, or at least be able to do, I think people realize our value because the thing everybody says, you know, you could say what you want to about respiratory, but when you can't breathe, who are you going to call? Yeah. Right. <laughs> in the hospital. Yeah. Anyway. RT. And, yeah. you know, so that, that should come with some, some perks, if you will, some, uh, uh, some pay raises and things like that. But I wanted to ask you too about the difference between an EMT and a paramedic. So when I worked for a private ambulance company, the EMTs were there on 72 hour shifts. Mm -hmm. I don't know if that's allowed anymore, but that's how they all made their living was, you know, they were there and then they made overtime. But I said, what happens if you get back to back to back calls? They were like, that's life. Yeah. And I thought that's not right. If I need an EMT or a paramedic, I don't want you not having slept for three days. You know? yeah. And is it still that way? Yes, unfortunately, there are still companies and still programs that, you know, I think there's a pull away from 72 hours, you're still seeing 48 hours. And in those smaller companies, you're still seeing staff shortages. So, you know, those EMTs and those paramedics are working 36, 48, 72 hours. 
on little to no sleep. And you're going to see that a lot out in the uh, outlying counties, especially in New Mexico. You know, I can't speak for any other state. I would assume, though, that it's probably pretty close to the same, that you live off of your overtime. You know, there's just, there's no way that an EMT or paramedic can survive on just one job unless you're getting paid really well or you're working a lot of overtime. And that's just how it is, unfortunately. But there are supposed to be rest regulations that aren't always followed. Or if they are followed, it's you've been up for 20 hours. Now go get four hours of sleep and get ready for your next shift. They did a thing. I don't know if it was just California or if it was all over. But the doctors had a thing. The interns and residents were saying the same thing. You know, we've been up for 48 hours and there's no one to relieve us. And we can't think straight after about 40 hours of being up. And this needs to change. And I don't remember what legislation happened or what group said, you know, you've got to hire more doctors or you've got to figure this out because yeah, you can't do that, especially in California, all our labor laws and crazy law stuff that we have. But it's the same thing in respiratory therapy. I mean, how many times have I gone to go home? Oh, so-and-so just called off sick at the last minute. Can you say, or our registry didn't show up or even just the transports, you know, it's five o'clock. Can you go on a transport? It's going to last till 3 a.m. But you know, there's nobody else that can go Yeah, kind of thing. You know, when you're in your 20s and 30s and maybe 40s, you're like, yeah, okay, good. But, you know, when you're pushing 60, (laughs) it gets a little bit um, more challenging to do that. And I think, and I hate to put it in this context, but I really think what it's going to take is somebody somewhere calling 911 and the 911 operator saying, I'm sorry, we don't have anybody. Again, I can't speak for any other community, but I know like in Albuquerque, the ambulance here, um, because I worked for the ambulance company here for several years, you know, we have what's called level zero. And that's when you don't have any ambulances available. Okay. We run off of a two tier system. So the fire department responds and one of the ambulances respond. We're getting to a point where there's no ambulances available and we have 30 trucks for the whole city running for the day, you know? And then the fire trucks are too busy. So they're having a hard time responding to those calls also. And it's just, you have these great providers, you know, these great paramedics, these great EMTs who are fighting and struggling because they they wanna do their job and they wanna do their job well, but you know, we're just getting pushed to the end. We're just getting pushed too far. And you're seeing a lot of EMS suicide and a lot of firefighter suicides and there's no reprieve you know and the the firefighters here work 48 hour shifts so some of the stations have the ability to switch between a rescue an engine and a ladder truck if it's like a a basic very easy 911 call if it's not though you only have one rescue with paramedics on it and those paramedics have to respond to anything that sounds critical So in 48 hours, they're pulling 48 calls, you know, 40 to 48 calls, and they're not getting any sleep. That's exhausting. And the thing, the the key word here, I think, is unsafe. We have a big strike that's about to happen out here. Um, And to my knowledge, they're not striking for money. They're striking for more help. You know, I don't know if you guys are part of a union or form one. It's not about the money. It's not about the benefits so much as it's about, you know, the human body has a limit. Not only that, but you're asking us to help other humans who are in trouble. And I want to be thinking straight when I'm doing that, especially with the little ones, you know, but with anybody, I want to be thinking straight. 
I want to be able to do my math. I want to make sure that, you know, I'm not adding a zero or putting the comma in the wrong place, you know, when I'm calculating things. So when the nurse asked me, you know, does this dose look right? You know, one to 10,000 epinephrine, you know, da, 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 da. And I'm like, I can't do that math in my head. I'm too tired. Yeah. Right. You got to <laughs> pull it, pull it together and focus. Yeah. Yeah. But that's, it's, it's something I think that, um, you know, it's, it's two-sided. Why is there such a need for so many 911 calls in this, in this? And, you know, why are we all so tired? Why aren't, why isn't everybody going to RT and paramedic and EMT school right now? You know, people are saying, oh, there's no jobs out there. Oh yeah, there are. There are you know, plenty of jobs. Yeah. Will you be a millionaire? Probably not, but you know, no. steady job benefits, you know, et cetera, et cetera. I always, I wanted to ask you though, I always wondered about that one. I always see a fire truck, like a ladder truck, followed by an ambulance. And I get it. If there's a fire, you know, they may need an ambulance. But if there's no fire, why do they send the whole ladder truck rather than just their paramedic rig? So it depends on the call. And I can't speak for California, but out here we'll send, we, you know, we do have ladder trucks. We also have engine trucks and then we have the rescues. And the the engines and the ladders you know, have extra hands, so EMTs, and they also have the ability to carry, you know, extrication equipment. If there's an accident, they can break into a car if they need to break into a car or, you know, if there's any type of search and rescue, like they need to go into a river or high angle rescue. There's a few of them that can go up on the mountain to do rope, um, rope rescues if they need to. So it just depends because some of them have uh, specialties kind of like the, like you do, um, or if they just need the extra hands, they'll send them like for a car accident, if they need more lanes blocked off, or if they need that scene cleaned up so that they can get the freeway back up and working and functioning properly. That makes sense. Yeah. I, you know, if I had to leave people with, with one thought, if I had to, if I had to make a request as a respiratory therapist of a paramedic and EMT, who's bringing us something into the ER, into the hospital, especially a ventilated patient, whether it's an adult, a kid or a baby, just really do your best to give concise report, because just remember that that nurse or that respiratory therapist in the ER might not be a pediatric nurse or pediatric Mm -hmm. RT. They may not be a neonatal probably not a neonatal nurse and probably not a NICU-RT unless somebody called the NICU-RT down because they heard there was a kid coming, you know? So the, the, the most concise report you can give us about the vent settle, settings and how you got to those and, you know, what was your, you know, did you have a TCOM or did you have an entitle in your rig? What was it? You know, what were your stats? Because sometimes they just say, you know, here you go. It was on 18 over three and 40%. See ya. Yeah. <laughs> um, so anything else you want to tell me? Yeah. <laughs> So to an, to somebody like me, I'm like, yeah, you know, I'll figure it out. But to somebody who's inexperienced in that ER, it's like just as much as you can tell us, we'll we'll soak it up. Sure. Yeah, no, definitely. And is there any advice that you would give to somebody who's responding to a pediatric or, you know, an infant respiratory breathing or respiratory arrest problem? Like, is there anything that you would suggest doing first or that's considered most important in what you're doing? Um, If they're in respiratory arrest, um, you know, definitely finding out the cause, right, treating your causes, um, and just getting the kid intubated, um, trying to figure out what happened. If they're in distress, what's causing the distress, don't be afraid of albuterol. I've had doctors order, you know, for babies that come in, okay, well, he weighs this much, so let's give 0.1 of albuterol, and I'm going, ah, you know, that's not going to do it. I mean, I'm going to lose half no. of it anyway. 
Yeah. Um, I've taken a bottle of albuterol, pure, undiluted, and poured it down a kid's ET tube to break them. Up. Wow. Yeah. And it works. And yeah, their heart rate goes up, but then their heart rate comes down because now I've opened them up. And I would say the same thing for racemic epi. You know, don't be afraid to, to do that. And if you, it, probably the biggest thing I teach in my pediatric class, and I'm going to send you the link to that. And Please do. Yes. Paramedics and EMTs are welcome to take this class. I would love to have a, a variety of attendees, if you will. But being able to bag in a treatment, if you've got a kid in Strider and you're trying to give them blow by, you're going to get nowhere fast. You've got to be able to bag it in. And do you have the adapters and the equipment that you need to hook a mask and a nebulizer in the middle to your bag? So I do this little exercise in my class where I give out a variety of all different kinds of Ambu bags, all different kinds of nebs, because there's a gazillion companies out there that make these, right? Yes. Masks. And I'm like, put it together. But don't forget, your nebulizer has to sit upright to nebulize. So you got to put it together where your kid's lying down and you can bag mask this kid with your nebulizer in the middle upright and get that racemic epi full dose, if not double dose into this kid. And almost always, it takes them about 20 minutes because they're like, oh, I need this. No, I need, no, that part doesn't fit. No, that doesn't fit either. No, how come, why is everything so different? Wow. <laughs> yes. yes, that's how it is everywhere. And not just with those pieces, but literally every piece in the medical field that we use Exactly. It's from a different thing. Like, yeah, like I had to have pads because we were going to pace a patient the other day and the pads that we had just happened to not be sticky anymore. And we didn't have a spare set of pads. Well, the hospital that we were at used a different monitor system than mm -hmm. we did. So we carry Zoll and they had LifePack. I had to call a friend of mine who worked at the hospital across the street and be like, hey, do you have Zol pads and she was like yeah and I was like cool we're coming over really quick we're gonna grab these pads <laughs> and it's yeah it's, it's difficult it's very difficult and I always joke if I ran the respiratory world everything would be 15 millimeter and 22 millimeter and would fit and connect together but I don't and that's not how it is so I tell people you know what make one of these kits and keep it with you throw it in your backpack or whatever make it yes. so that if you ever had a bag in a treatment you have the entire setup you're not looking for an adapter you're not looking for this you're not looking for that you got what you need right we're Johnny right. on the spot you got what you need but yeah the the thing too if you wanted to make a million dollars would be to do what mercury medical did we had a we had a case i'll leave you with this um <laughs> the er bought a ge isolate type bed that came with um was it ge i can't remember anyway they made one brand and they had the neopuff built into their system Upstairs in the NICU, they had the Neopuff. So the Neopuff is its own proprietary thing, right? And the GE bed downstairs has its own proprietary circuit that doesn't fit on the Neopuff and vice versa. And Central Supply was always mixing up those two supplies. I was always getting calls saying, "We the circuits don't fit the Neopuff. I'm like, take them to the ER and just switch them out, right? And finally, Mercury Medical came out with one that had an adapter on the end. And so that would be the perfect thing from a Zoll to a life pack. Is there a little yes. adapter you could have invent that just <laughs> that would, you know, one size fits all that would make every defibrillator work with every kind of pad. Right. And if it's, if it's not invented yet, throw my name on it. <laughs> Somebody needs to invent that. But, you know, I mean, it's all about patient safety. Like why would you buy it two is. types of baby resuscitators? Right. Right. Um, yeah. Right. And we're seeing, so like people are getting frustrated about like, as an example, Apple and Android have two different connectors, right? In the last few years, we've seen Android move into the type C connector. 
Uh, and we've slowly started seeing Apple also moving. I think with the newest iPhone, they just finally said they're going to do type C. So now everybody's going to have type C connectors for their phones, right? So why can we not do the same thing in the medical field for everything? If I'm transferring a patient and that patient is being paced, why don't I have the ability to just switch that cord as easy instead of having to, and I'm sure you've seen the, the pads that we use, you know, for uh, if we have to defibrillate, those are thick pads, very big. You have to rip them off and then put your pads on. Now the patient has to get cold again. You've ripped off all their hair if they had any hair. You've ripped off half of their skin because it's stuck so hard to their skin that it's mm -hmm. just ripped it off as the second time, third time, fourth time that they've had to have the pad switched because there's no connectors. And there should be. I mean, when I go traveling to, to do my talks, I take a little dongle because I work on a Mac, even though I have an Android phone. Don't ask yes. me. Yes. Anyway. I, yeah, but, we, that'll be a conversation <laughs> for a different time. <laughs> yeah, but they make those dongles. Why can't they make those dongles for defibrillators? Why can't mm -hmm. they make those dongles for, you know, whatever other group? Because you're right. And same thing with babies. You know, we got to now carefully peel those EKG leads off and put new ones on somewhere. They're not a lot of real estate on these little kids. No. You know, find somewhere else to put it, you know, so that our transport stuff will fit. And then when we get back to the hospital, we got to undo it and do it again. It's like, oh, this yeah. is ridiculous. Yeah. The pulse ox, <laughs> the pulse oxes that have yes. to be switched four or five times because now you've just changed from one to the other and then back to the other one and yeah exactly no i agree that's uh that needs to be something that needs to be made and provided for for people and companies not for some ridiculous rate but for something affordable we're trying to help our own people um there's no reason we should be having to spend a million dollars just to get these little pieces exactly exactly everybody everybody wants to get rich that's part of the problem though. <laughs> All right, Kelly. Well, it has been an hour and it has been an amazing hour. I thank you so much for reaching out and uh, for listening to the podcast and for jumping on the podcast. It's been an absolute pleasure having you on today. Well, thank you so much for having me. I was just excited to be able to, you know, we're, we're part of the team. You guys are the true first responders and, you know, call us whatever you want to, but, you know, we're all in this together and I'm just yes. I'm so happy to be here and hopefully people listening will um, not be so scared of kids. Maybe um, have a look at my class and just be a little bit more at ease with that population. Yes. Yeah, send me, send me the link and I will tag you on Facebook so that people can find you. And uh, if you have a website, I'll add the website as well. Awesome. Perfect. All right, Excellent. Kelly, thank you so much. It's thank been a pleasure meeting you. Yes. Take care. Okay. I hope you have a good day. You too. Thank you. Thank Bye. you. Bye. Thank you for listening. Before we wrap up, we have a few important announcements to share with you. Firstly, we're excited to announce the launch of our brand new 911 Nonsense Facebook group page. It's a community where everyone can go to connect, share ideas, discuss topics from the show, and get all of the most recent updates about the podcast. We'd love to have you join us and be part of the conversation. Next, we want to ask you to rate and review our podcast on your preferred platform. Your feedback means the world to us and helps us reach a wider audience. By rating and reviewing the show, you'll be supporting us in a big way and helping others discover 911 nonsense. If you enjoy what we do and would like to support the podcast even further, we have a few options available. You can visit samspursuit.com to find the links to our 911 nonsense merch page and our recently released noon gear page. Every contribution, no matter the size, goes a long way in helping us continue to better the podcast. We know that not everyone is comfortable being on the podcast, but we still want to hear your stories and experiences. 
If you have a compelling story and would like to share it to be read by me in a future episode, please reach out to us via email at 911nonsense at gmail.com or through our website's contact section. If you choose to be anonymous, we'll make sure to respect your privacy while sharing your story in a way that resonates with our audience. Thank you again for tuning in. We truly appreciate your support and look forward to bringing you more engaging content in the future. See you next week.